This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 163 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, uh, if you're following me there already, you might have seen me post a Kobe Bryant patch that I picked up at a show this weekend. It certainly wasn't a card I expected to come home with, but it happened. And that's part of what makes the card show scene so enjoyable. So if you want to learn more about that and what I gave up to acquire that Kobe card, you can find the recap of the Clearwater Card Show on my YouTube channel. As for today's episode, though, got some mail that I want to talk about. Um, I mentioned on last week's episode that I was waiting on some packages. Well, the majority of those showed up on Monday. Isn't that how it always works? Uh, After that, I've got another installment of Collector Classified starring my favorite, Wilt Chamberlain Collector. And and then, as you can see from the title, today's episode features my ninth listener mailbag. Those are always a lot of fun to piece together. I get pretty good feedback from them, too, so you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, enough with all that. On to the mail. The first piece of mail I want to talk about today is a dual autograph that I kind of stumbled upon. So I was familiar with the set, but not this particular pairing. So uh, back in 2003-2004, SP Signature had a set called Marquee Marks. Not to be confused with Marky Mark. Marquee, like the Panini set, Marquee, right? There's a movie theme to it. And it had an assortment of players and in a few cases celebrities or basketball personalities. Well, there's a LeBron James-Darius Miles duel in the set. Um, but I would say that the most sought after card is the Reggie Miller Spike Lee dual auto number to 25. And I'm not just trying to be biased there because I'm a Pacers fan. Um, that is one that appeals to a ton of basketball collectors. Um, and there's only 25 of them. And guess what? That's not what I have to tell you about today. That one's way out of my budget. If I could even find a copy for sale, but there's another Reggie in the set where he's partnered with his sister, Cheryl. And, uh, you know, that one's probably more in my price range and I'd like to grab it someday, but that's not the one I'm talking about today either. Um, I was, however, in the process of searching for that, that I stumbled on the one that I did get, which is a Cheryl Miller Summer Sanders dual auto from the set number to 100. And if the name Summer Sanders sounds familiar, but you can't place it, you might know her either as being a famous swimmer, but more... Um, more likely you know her as Ahmad Rashad's co-host on NBA Inside Stuff. If you're like me, you watch that show all the time growing up. So um, I thought, you know, when I first saw this card, I thought the buy it now was reasonable, but I waited. And then I got one of those automatic offers from the seller. I thought that was more than reasonable. 
um, but it wasn't moving. So I decided to reach out to the seller with an offer that uh, was a little lower than that. And they accepted it, and the rest is history. Um, I like this card a lot. It's something different. Um, I don't know if it, you know, even though it is different, I don't know if it really fits my PC in the long term. But uh, maybe I can flip it somewhere down the road for another PC card. You know, if I can do that, I might. I'm not in a hurry to move it. You know, I'm going to at least enjoy it for a little bit here. Okay, the next card that I received this week was a 2020-2021 Flawless Emerald Patch of Malcolm Brogdon. And as with most of the Emerald Patches from this set, it features a piece of the sponsor logo. I talked a little about the Motorola sponsorship a couple weeks ago when I acquired a Miles Turner patch. Well, now I have another one. I think I'd seen two from this print run already, and I thought they went a little too high, but as it turns out, they only cost a little more than the one I got, and they looked better too. So, you know, I should have grabbed those, but it is what it is. On those, the logo was more centered, or the jersey matched up better with the picture on the card, but like I said, it is what it is. Um, Regardless, I have been stockpiling Pacers Flawless Jumbo Patches for a while now. I haven't had too much success from this last release, because they're just not showing up. And, the, you know, I've talked about it already. The breakers will tell you there's not much of this stuff left. Well, judging by the amount of cards that have hit the secondary market, I'm not so sure about that. Um, but then again, the high-end rollers that are breaking them probably aren't worrying about listing the $30 and $40 patches on eBay. You know, we all have junk boxes where we've got $1 and $2 relics. They probably have them where they have 50 and $60 relics, so... Um, Anyway, this one showed up. I decided to pull the trigger, and I'm glad I did. If I see a better one in the future, I might upgrade, but this one will do for now. Another reason I pulled the trigger on that one, and this is kind of goofy. This is more of a uh, confession time than anything, but there was an eBay Bucks promo. Those things have a weird effect on me. I'm willing to spend more on an item because I'm getting maybe 3 to $4 back that I otherwise wouldn't, even though I'm not really saving 3 or $4. So, or I upped my initial offer considerably more than 3 or $4. So between that and the multiple, you missed out on this item, notifications that eBay sends you after you lose. I think they have a decent grasp on human psychology. You know, I get it. I lost. I hate those notifications. Nonetheless, my eBay bucks came in. I got something like $8.34, not from that card, but from the whole quarter. And I went straight to a David Harrison pristine gold refractor that I had been watching on eBay. And I made a $10 offer. The seller accepted, so I got that in this week too. I found that in some cases, uh, the standard envelope stuff travels a lot quicker than first class packages. So that's really nice. Unless it's a relic, I don't want it then. I've talked about that before. But otherwise, I really like that program. So uh, the card I got, the gold refractor, it's numbered to 27. And the regular refractor in that set is numbered to 25. So that's a little different configuration than all the other sets of that era. I've always thought that was kind of cool, and it it was something that uh, sets pristine apart. And there are four Pacers total in this set, which oddly enough does not include Reggie Miller, even though he's in a few of the Relic sets. Um, This David Harrison card now accounts for three of the four golds for me. I've got Ron Artest, I've got Jermaine O'Neal, and now David Harrison. The only one I'm missing is Jeff Foster. I'm guessing the majority of the owners don't care enough to list the card. Well, if you got a lead on one, let me know. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike, Lakers Forum Gold on Instagram. I'm a Wilt Chamberlain collector, currently looking for these. I really need the 2007 Topps Letterman, the letter M, 
patch so I can finish spelling Chamberlain. I'm also looking for the French 5 Majeure card, the 1998 Golden Greats, the laser die cut version, and the 2003 Upper Deck Black Diamond Rainbow, number to 10. Thanks for the help. I know I mentioned him in my recap several years ago, but Mike is one of the collectors I had the privilege of meeting at the 2019 National and we've made a couple deals over the last few years, and he has always been more than fair with me. He's a wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes to all things Lakers and all things Wilt. I have gained so much from him. Not only have I gained a few cards, but I've also just gained a lot of knowledge in general. He's always helped me out when I've had questions. So in this case, I would love to be able to help him out. So keep an eye out on my social media. I'll need his help a little bit on this, but... I'm going to get some pictures of the stuff that he's looking for so then you guys know what you're looking for as well and then maybe we can come together and help him out. All right, before I move into the listener mailbag segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, Go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, I've got quite a few questions to get through today. I'm pretty excited about this one, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in with question one, which comes from Lorem Cards, who asks, what parts of Panini, specific card sets, or anything in general do you think will age well? Uh, for me, it's going to come down to several factors. I think it's, it's going to have to be stuff that has somewhat of a limited print run. There's got to be some continuity there, so it can't just be a one-off. Um, and then there's got to be some star power. So, you know, yes, that's going to include some things that are already sought after, like National Treasures RPAs or Prism Golds. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're going to keep setting records in terms of value, but I think those things will age well. Um, I'm also going to mention something that I'll talk about several times today, which is game-dated materials and some of the NBA final stuff. I think that's going to fare well just because the subject matter is um, either specific or it's important. And sometimes we take that stuff for granted and we don't realize it until it's gone, or in this case, diminishing. One good thing about Panini's recent history is that it's forced me to appreciate their first handful of years of basketball a lot more. Okay, our Northeastern correspondent, Sholey2003, or S. Halley2003, asks, What's one set, product, etc. that you wish you paid more attention to when it was released? He said, uh, things that you could sell now for a small fortune like PMGs don't count. Well, uh, I know another one of the comments said 2012 Prism. So, you know, if we look at that angle from an investment angle, yeah, I would agree with that. But at the same time, I did pay attention to that set when it came out. And one, it seemed kind of underwhelming to me then. Uh, two, it didn't really fit my collecting needs at the time either because I was trying to get cards signed in person and the Prism cards kind of bubbled up and you had to prep them, right? Whereas you could take a hoops card straight from the pack, and it was a lot less hassle. Um, I know I've told this story before, but I opened one hobby box of Prism back then for $60, mind you. I 
pulled a Kevin Garnett silver, although a lot of us called them refractors back then. I traded it to the shop owner for like 10 base cards because he knew someone that was doing this set. Um, and it wasn't that big of a deal back then. So um, there are all sorts of sets I could look back on and say, oh, I would have made so much money from that. Hindsight is 2020, but I don't think that's what the question was looking for. So if you forget about the financial aspect of things, there are still some sets I wish I paid more attention to. One of them was a product called Panini Innovation. You know, the die cuts at the time didn't mean much to me because I was more of a memorabilia guy. And even then, the, the game-dated patches didn't mean as much to me because they were a lot smaller and weaker than some of the normal patch sets that we got. So I've come to appreciate that stuff a lot more over time, not necessarily because it's become more popular, but a lot of the other stuff has become kind of stale in the hobby. And that stuff was and still is innovative, as the title of the set would indicate. Um, if we go even further back, I wish I had taken to refractors a little bit earlier than I did. Um, that doesn't mean I ignored them entirely, but I was just mainly picking up Ron Artest cards and a couple other Pacers here and there, but those took a backseat to memorabilia cards. If you can't tell, I've always had this weird fascination with relics, and I just can't shake it. I still do, but I started a, a couple refractor binders around the time of the pandemic, and it's been a lot of fun to see those slowly fill up, and I've avoided going out and just buying them all in bulk because I want to have something to work for. It definitely would have been a lot cheaper had I started them years ago, and I wouldn't be left scrambling to try and find some of the tougher ones. So in a sense, I wish I had paid more attention to them at release, but like nearly everyone else, my hobby funds are limited. You just have to take whatever you can and, and prioritize according to your goals at the time. Um, but that's a good thing in a way, because there's some sacrifice and some cost involved with each acquisition, and it actually means something. That moves us into the next question, which also deals with money. Comes from late 90s B-Ball. It says, what is an excessive amount for an average person to spend on their card hobby per month? For someone who makes $50,000 per year, for someone who makes $100,000 per year, and someone who makes $150,000 per year. For argument's sake, let's say each person is married with at least one child. And then he said, this one's really subjective, I suppose. Yes, it is. Um... I don't have any kids, so I really can't answer this question with any level of expertise. And just in general, I try to stay away from giving any kind of financial advice. Um, because as you sort of acknowledge there at the end, everyone's experience is different. What I will say is this. Try to find ways that make your hobby as self-sustaining as possible. Now, that might require some sort of initial investment, but you never want to overextend yourself or even put yourself in a position where the possibility is there. I'm sure you guys already realize this, but you should never compromise the well-being of yourself and those around you for cards. It is just simply not worth it. Okay, next question comes from 77 NCAA Champs. He said, one worldwide set release or should regions like Africa, Asia, etc. have their own sets? Well, the first thought that came to my mind when I read this question was that it feels like a lot of modern international or regional releases water down the original product. And some of them don't need that. Take Prism, for example, which was paralleled to death a long time ago. We don't need more swirls. We don't need more animal patterns. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm not the only person operating in this hobby. So I want to try and see things from a different perspective. If some of these regional releases allow different locations to have access to cards where they normally wouldn't, then for that reason, they could be a good thing. 
but I don't have a real good understanding of how the international stuff works. For instance, how do we determine which regions get them? The only one I hear about is, is Tmall, which is a, a Chinese business to consumer retailer. Have we ever had an Australian release? Because it feels like there's a pretty strong basketball presence there. And maybe we have. I honestly don't know. But I'll be curious to see what Fanatics is going to do here. Whenever I've heard a podcast with Michael Rubin or Josh Luber, it's like the majority of the conversation deals with distribution and not cards. So you have to figure it, it will at least be considered because they're definitely trying to get these cards out. Um, in an ideal world, I'd like to see sets that are broadly distributed and available, but not mass-produced. Economics tells us that might be a bit of a paradox, but that's above my pay grade. All right, uh, Tyson asks, what are you packing to take to shows for walk-around, trade, sell candidates that might differ from your show table items? With plans to do out-of-state shows, is it changing what you plan to take? Well, um, I try to store my stuff so it can be easily transferred from show inventory to a backpack. And my show setup is usually one, you know, one six-foot table or in some cases half of that. So I don't have as much inventory as some people do. And that allows me to fit everything that I'm looking to move in. Usually one large tote and then maybe another box on top of that. Um, inside of that large tote is a smaller container that fits my showcase cards. And that container is then small enough that it can fit into a backpack without any real rearranging. So I try to package things up so I can take them in whatever way I need to. Um, when I have a full inventory and a lot of it's raw, I generally put everything that's $40 or higher in the showcase. Uh, I think that's going to be my traveling plan as well. Any slabs or raw cards worth $30 or more. And if my container has a bunch more space, I'll lower the dollar threshold, probably drop it down to 20 and see what happens there. I just don't want things to get too heavy because that starts to wear on you after a while, especially with a backpack. If you've gone to a big show and you've wore a backpack, then you know that um, it can get heavy over time. Okay, fourth floor cards ask, are you more comfortable buying bigger cards in person at shows? Or if you really want the card, does buying online at various platforms not bother you too much? If so, what are your biggest concerns of buying big cards online? And what could be done to quell those concerns? Well, um, I don't really buy a lot of big cards. And quite frankly, a lot of the cards I would consider big would probably be just another day in the hobby for some people. Uh, in theory, I'd love to see every card in person before I bought it. But that's usually not the case. I'm, I'm very picky on the stuff that I like. And I more or less have to let the location of the cards dictate my approach. So most of my purchases are, in fact, online, and most of them are eBay. So I guess if I buy something really big, I've got the authenticity guarantee. I know people are annoyed by that, but I think in some cases that could be handy. Um, I haven't bought anything in that range since the program started, though, so I can't tell you. But uh, for everything else, I have PayPal, and then to an extent, I still have eBay themselves to protect me. The only other place I might buy would be Instagram, and if I'm going to go that route, I'll ask for vouchers. And then I'm going to make sure that I pay goods and services. Um, and for everything I do, I think those few guidelines will protect me. All right, next question comes from Tough Times Cards, who ask, what's your thoughts on mascot cards in NBA? Tops has had some in baseball. Autos and relics look pretty cool. Uh, it would be fun getting the Phoenix Gorilla Auto or Relics or Chase Rainbows of some. Upper Deck even made a Young Guns rookie of Flyers mascots gritty and his cards sell for a lot. 
Well, as a team collector and a Topps Total enthusiast, I am all for this, but it has to be limited and manufacturers have to be selective on what products they put them in. You might remember a while ago, I gave my proposal for a 400 plus card prism set. This could include anything from mascots to coaches to executives and so on. Upping the number of cards in the base set would allow Panini to raise the print run without having to add so many useless parallels. I'm actually kind of surprised they haven't done this yet. Anyway, to make a long answer short, yes, sign me up for more mascot cards. Okay, 727 Sports Cards Greg asks, Now that the season has concluded, what are your thoughts on the 2021-22 draft class and their impact on the hobby? And then uh, in the comments, the Itch for Cards says, I have one a little deeper. With the delays to releases nearly a year now, what do you think it will do to the 2021 and 2022 rookie class as the hobby market is about the hype? These guys are already a season in and hardly anyone knows or hypes them because the 2020 class is still being released. Um, I tell you what, the 2021 draft class has been awesome this year. Uh, you know, I've been really impressed. And with that being said, basketball cards are in such a weird spot right now that I don't think a good class can really bring them out of it. Panini is not doing them any favors. They have got to find a way to catch up because these delays are killing them. They need to cut some products or something. Um, I know they got behind during COVID and with, with all the supply chain issues and all that, but I think it's clear by now that they aren't proactively looking for solutions. And I've seen some people argue that some of this could even be intentional. Seems like Panini kind of wants to leave basketball cards in a mess uh, for fanatics to have to clean it up. And if, if you look at history and card history specifically, Tops and Upper Deck could have done the same thing to Panini. They could have left them a royal mess on their hands, but they didn't. And I hope the NBA is taking note of that because they've entrusted their license and their branding to a company and said company chose to run it into the ground instead of going out strong. This isn't supposed to be like baseball where you sign a pitcher for seven years and hope that you get three good seasons out of them. Uh, this is a contract that should be honored with integrity from start to finish. If I was the NBA, I wouldn't ever want to work with Panini again. All right, um, Adam, a.k.a. the Rodman Gallery, said, Most people know about Beckett Marketplace, Sportlots, and eBay, but what are some more unknown places to find cards? I know I've used Mercari, Bid Taiwan, Mint Mall, and I'm a one-time user of Card Hobby. Recently, I've been finding card shop websites that have online inventories. I would love to know what are some other hidden sites to search. Um, well, I dabbled a little with the card shop thing a little around maybe three years ago. It started off when I was trying to find more tops total boxes to rip, and I had luck with a couple shops, and then one of them that I went to online had a whole page of printing plates and one-on-ones for sale. So I tried to give that link to you know any corresponding player collector that I saw on there, and I grabbed a couple cards for myself as well, but I haven't had any success with that lately. So, you know, I wish I had another secret stash to tell you about um, that you didn't mention. I'm really not withholding anything. It's not like I'm trying to keep them a secret. I'm out of options here, so I guess I should propose this question to everyone that's listening. Um, what marketplaces are we missing out on here? I saw in the comments that Dan, which would be at the itch for cards, mentioned the Buy app. Uh, maybe you guys know of some others, so please reach out if you do. Okay, uh, Mr. Archer said, what would you like to see the Pacers do this offseason with the draft 
and their roster to get back into the playoff mix. Um, there's a lot of things that they could do, so I'm just going to try and list some of the bigger moves here real quick. And let me preface this by saying that I am a big Miles Turner fan, but I, I'm just going to operate under this idea that they're probably getting rid of him. Um, so if they are in fact ready to move on from him or ready to get rid of him, um, I would call James Jones in Phoenix and I would try to work out some sort of a tr- uh, sign and trade with probably Brogdon Turner and and whatever you know draft picks pieces whatever in exchange for DeAndre Ayton because it seems like they don't want to go into the tax and max him out. Um, and I think that's a move that the Pacers uh, should pounce on if they could. Um, as far as who else they would re-sign from their current roster, I think they should re-sign TJ Warren to just a, a minimum, you know, one-year prove-it deal. And of course, I'd love to bring Lance back. I'm not sure if that's the best choice or not, but if there's a roster spot, go ahead and get him. And then sign Jalen Smith as a backup center if no one offers him uh, more than the Pacers can. As for the draft... If they get a top five pick, I'd love to see them go after Bancaro or Jabari. Um, I know they need a wing, and a lot of people have them projected to grab the Murray kid from Iowa, but if the pick's in the top five, I'd much rather go for someone else and work the rest out later on. I'm a little nervous about the draft, uh, but at the same time excited because I don't think the Pacers have ever had a single-digit draft pick in my lifetime. They did have the, the pick they got from the Raptors, but that's it. That was back in 1999 even. So the Pacers have had some bad breaks over the last seven or eight years. Um, I'm hoping for better days ahead, starting with the draft lottery on May 17th and then moving to the draft on, I believe, June 23rd. Okay. Dennis Rodman Collection said, you've given us the history of the Logo Man. How about a look at the history of relic cards other than jersey patch stuff? I'm thinking of the 99 UD game shoes 99 net shredders, draft hat cards, tops, playoff towels, game use floor, etc. Um, I do love that kind of stuff. And that's actually something I've looked into um, over the last year or two. I, I've been trying to screenshot it whenever I see it, just so I can remember it later on. The problem is I haven't gone back and actually compiled that stuff. And um, I'd like to do an episode like that, but it's going to take a ton of time, more so than the standard episode which is also taking me a little more time than I'd like right now. So that might be a good project for the summer. I can kind of slowly work on it and um, then piece everything together at the end. Okay, JB's Jalen Brown PC said, Not a question, but a suggestion. Enjoy what you can and F the rest. That's what I want to hear. I enjoy hearing about your latest Jeff Foster pickup, busting Probstein for not doing three hours of research on the thousands of cards he receives, and busting group breakers balls, not so much. Keep it as fun as possible and as positive as possible. Much love. All right. Um, I know you've been a listener for a long time, and I know this suggestion comes from a good place. So first off, know that I appreciate that. Um, and I and because I do, I'm going to give you a very straightforward response. If that's what you got out of the Probstein segment, then you missed the point. I even explicitly stated in the episode that I didn't expect them to do hours of research as part of my counterclaim. Uh, Similarly, if you thought I talked about group breakers just for kicks, you're mistaken. I try to point these things out when I see them, number one, to try and hold some of these people accountable for the destruction that in some cases they're causing, or in other cases they're just allowing to take place. And then more importantly, number two, I point these things out to try and watch out for people in the hobby 
that maybe don't have the same vantage point or don't have a grasp of the history or maybe they don't realize the things that are happening around them in the moment. So, you know, this show's been around for three years now and I've addressed fraud from the very start. So that's just part of the DNA of what I do here. And the keep it positive narrative has been floating around for a while now. I'd like to think that calling out fraud and trying to prevent it in the future is a net positive for the hobby. And this is why, part of why at least, I entered content creation. Because I didn't feel like a lot of the fraud in the hobby was being adequately addressed. Um, Now, at first I thought, you know what, I'm just going to talk to my friends that have shows or talk to the people I know that have shows, and I'm going to convince them that they need to do this. And after a while, I realized, you know, they're not doing this and, you know, it seems like they don't want to, and these are their shows so they can do whatever they want. Um, I'm going to have to make the kind of show that I feel needs to be made. And that's what I did. That's how this show really started. So my suggestion back to you would be, if there's a certain type of content you'd like to see more of, feel free to create it yourself. And I am all for new quality content. I would watch it. So that goes for everyone else out there. Film your mail, film your favorite sets, doesn't have to be super complicated, uh, but think about the content that you want to consume and go create it. Okay, Uh, Fetty Wap says, speaking of great content, could you get the Rip Gods on the show? Well, from what I understand, the gods have a pretty hectic schedule that consists of sleeping until 5 p.m. and then pulling nonstop fire into the wee hours of the morning. I was half tempted to ask them to read the final Manscaped promo last week, but I ran out of time. Rest assured, though, I don't think we've seen or heard the last from them. Okay, New York City Hoops Collector says, If you had to pick one, which would you prefer? A game-used three-collar patch with a sticker auto or a game-used single-collar jersey swatch with an on-card auto? Assume the same player in the same year. And then a follow-up, what if a three-collar patch wasn't game-used? Well, I wish I could say neither. I try to weed some of that stuff out of my collection. Um, And honestly, if you collect long enough, you'll, you'll learn to do that, right? Because you just, you're going to accumulate so many cards that you've compromised on and you're going to think to yourself, you know, I wish I would stop buying this stuff. And after some point, you probably will. But you mentioned I had to pick one, so I'll comply. My general rule is that the patch takes priority over the autograph because In most cases, I can always try to get something signed myself. I don't have the same access to game-worn materials, and I'm not able to cut them up and do all that stuff. So if I had to pick one, I'd choose the three-collar patch with a sticker auto. Um, Now, if it wasn't game-used, though, if it was player-worn, I might accept that if it's a rookie. But um, if it's unworn entirely, I'll go for an on-card auto. Okay, PK Card says, How great are some of the inserts in hoops? Can you admit that Hoops has some cool inserts? If you had to choose, what's your favorite? Well, um, you know, I've got no issue admitting this, and I have before. There are parts of Hoops that I like and Hoops sets that I really like. It's more of a running gag on here, but um, a couple of the inserts that I like from this year included the highlight set, which features specific moments throughout the past season. Um, They have one for TJ McConnell where he got 10 steals in a game, and I actually got that one signed when I did autographs in Orlando. Um, And then the other one that I like from this season is called Lights, Camera, Action. It's got a horizontal game photo, and the hollow version looks really good. Um, There is a Sabonis card in that set, 
which features a Raptors game that I went to in Tampa. So you know I had to grab that one. Um, it is in my incoming ComC shipment, so hopefully I'll be able to show that one off soon. Be on the watch for that on my YouTube, maybe in a couple weeks. Okay, my player collections ask, why is there no love for police sets? And then do you have a favorite police set? Um, and he spelled favorite in a very Canadian way, so um, kudos to my Canadian collector friends out there. I always give them a hard time for that. I haven't really talked about police sets on the show before, so this is a good question. So, And, and I guess I should give some context first, because um, throughout the history of sports cards, sets have been manufactured uh, at times to help move products in other industries. So, you know, it's a lot more common with baseball. Think Mother's Cookies, Hostess, and so on. And in many cases, these cards functioned as advertisements as well. You know, not only do you have the Hostess cards, but then every time you see that, you think of Hostess, right? Which could make you hungry. Um, that's why you'll see some company sponsor releases or like team sets. They know that that's another way to get their logo out there a little bit more. So over time, police departments treated it a little bit in the same way. They realized that they could use card sets to reach kids and promote public safety at the same time. So for example, there's a Spurs card that on the back of it, um, it explains the concept of substitution in a basketball game. And then the safety tip below that says, there's no substitution for good conduct at home or away. Now, sometimes these police sets were distributed at games. Um, I imagine there were also times they were distributed by officers at schools or on the streets or wherever they would come in contact with kids. It all varies a little from set to set. But um, in the late 70s and early 80s, it became more common to see basketball police sets. And there were, you know, it's not just pro, there were college teams as well. I think the college ones were actually a little more prevalent. Uh, as far as the pro teams, I've seen Spurs, Blazers, and Sonics from the late 70s and early 80s. I'm sure there are some others I haven't seen. Um, as far as college, if you're looking for pre-rookie cards of key players, that might be an option for you because there's like, a Georgetown set that has an Allen Iverson card. Um, so you, that might give you something else to chase. I know there have been a few ultra-modern police releases as well. Um, I've seen one from 2017 with Giannis on the Bucks, But um, I never got into them because the Pacers never had a set. At least I've never seen one. Um, if they did, it would have been in the 80s, which was not an era of Pacers basketball that I want much to do with because they were absolutely dreadful then. And I, I think a lot of other people are in the same boat. They either don't know that police cards exist or they're not interested in the teams that have one. So to answer the final part of your question, I don't have a favorite set, but if I did have to pick one, it'd be one of the pro sets because I just don't do a lot of college stuff in general. Okay. Mind Cycle Cards, Ryan asks, what is your favorite tall boy or oversized basketball card set? Well, when it comes to cards, you know, I consider myself more of a traditionalist. I'm just not big on tall cards in general. They're awkward to store. They're very condition sensitive. Um, if we're talking about standard license sets, then that's going to narrow it down to like 69 tops, 70 tops, 76 tops. And then uh, some of the early to mid 90s Fleer Jam Session sets. There's also a set in the early 2000s called Tops High Tops. There's a good chance I'm missing one or two others. Those are just the ones that I can think of real quick here. The more modern sets don't appeal to me at all. And the 76 top set, 
when we, when I say it's oversized, uh, it is oversized to the extreme. So I'm not a fan of, of those either. I'm going to have to go with either 69 tops or 70 tops um, because I, I can accept those. Being a traditionalist, even though they aren't the traditional size, tops really wasn't sure what the traditional size was then. They're very historic and they played a big role in the development of basketball cards as a whole. Okay, next question comes from Billy Hoyle Can Dunk. Says, what is your favorite era of basketball and basketball cards and why? What's your favorite card in your collection? And then what card would you like to add to your collection? Well, my favorite era is from a really small window, which would be 2003 to 2006. And I took um, a short break from collecting cards between 2000 and 2003, which thankfully I came back in time, although that LeBron James guy did have something to do with that. But um, that comeback also included discovering online forums, which played a big role in my collecting history. Another thing going on then, there were three manufacturers competing, so there were a lot of options. Uh, patches were starting to become more of a thing. I was player collecting Ron Artest, so I was following the new releases pretty close. And then on top of all that, the Pacers were really competitive and a lot of fun to watch. So it was kind of the perfect storm for me. Um, and you know what? Now that I'm I'm disgusted with the way that Panini's handling the license, I'm finding myself going back and picking up more stuff from this era. So it's still been a good time for me. Um, it's allowed me to fill some gaps in. So all in all, you know, I can't complain about what's going on now too much because I'm, I'm having to reinvent myself. And that's that's good for me personally. Um, you ask about my favorite card then, so it's it's no coincidence that it's from that era. It's a 2004-2005 Fleer Fresh Ink 5-on-5 10-player patch card featuring players from the Pacers and Pistons. And then as far as what I'd like to add to my collection, it would be more Pacers Jumbo patches from 2005-2006 Tops Big Game. Okay, my good friend Steve, a.k.a. Vintage Pacers, says, I've got a two-for-one. Um... What is your earliest memory of being a pro wrestling fan? And then if you could take one product design or concept from any year in the history of basketball cards and use it for a wrestling product, what would it be and why? Well, my parents weren't really big wrestling fans, so I wasn't exposed to it at a super young age. And I gave my whole wrestling history on the Wrestling With Cards show with Zan Morning on YouTube. So you might want to check that out if you are a wrestling fan or if you want to hear more about that. But um, I did start to get into wrestling when I was in middle school and the Attitude Era was in full swing. And one early memory that sticks out in my mind, my cousins had a Nintendo 64 and they brought it to my grandma and grandpa's house one year for Christmas. One of the games they brought with them was WCW NWO Revenge. And we even had grandma on it at some point playing as Ultimo Dragon and she had no clue what she was doing, but it was fun. It was a great time. From that moment on, I was obsessed with getting a console of my own so I could have my own wrestling game. I eventually wound up with the PlayStation and WCW Thunder. So that was some of my early wrestling memories. Um, if I could take a basketball concept and apply it to a wrestling product, um, I think it would be cool to see Panini take some of the game-dated sets and convert them into match-dated materials. Tops has done some of that in the past, but it seems like it's mostly matte relics, which are boring and mass-produced. But if Panini wanted to take something they've already done, maybe instead of acetate finals booklets, we get WrestleMania booklets. 
or SummerSlam booklets or whatever else you might want to promote. Um, you know, get specific match-worn gear from big events, not just house shows and stuff, or, you know, elimination chamber booklets with pieces of the actual chamber, something like that. Um, the stat line booklets, if they did that, it'd be a little more difficult because you don't get the same type of stats in a match. I guess you could put the win-loss record, but um, other than Brock Lesnar at, at Wrest- or Undertaker at WrestleMania, the WWE doesn't focus too much on wins and losses that's more of an AEW thing. Speaking of which, um, I felt like their first Upper Deck relics were very underwhelming. Uh, it's just a bunch of house show t-shirts and uh, map pieces. That's boring. Give me something new. Um, for example, TriStar used to use some uh, event-specific stuff in their TNA sets. They even had a Ric Flair relic with pieces of an Armani suit, and they told you when it came from. That's the kind of stuff that I want to see. I want my cards styling and profiling. Um, I doubt that we'll get that though, at least not with Panini, because just as soon as they grab the WWE license, we've learned that it goes back to Tops and Fanatics in just a few short years. I know Panini's doing a revolution set real soon. I figure they're just going to, as quick as they can, recycle a bunch of old designs, slap on some stickers, and call it a day. All right, speaking of Panini, Paul Catcher underscore sports cards ask, how many more Panini products until Louis Dampier goes on the Mount Rushmore of basketball card legends? I tell you what, he's creeping his way in because Panini sure loves these lower tier retired stars that are willing signers. They've been using them for product fodder for years now. And if I made a Mount Rushmore surrounding that criteria... I think the the winners would have to be Adrian Dantley, Mark Aguirre, and Alex English. And maybe the fourth spot's up in the air. Maybe it's Louie. Who knows? Uh, And no, that's not really scientific. I haven't sat down and counted the releases therein. But it seems like every time I watch a high-end break, those guys are coming out every other box. Okay, Cardboard Insights asks, or said, Some sets in the hobby seem to garner consensus among collectors as cool or important even if at one point they may have been glanced over or throwaways, how do these movements start? Is the fact that they were once glanced over the reason why they rose to prominence? Um, I think in some cases the growth is manufactured, and in other cases it's organic. There are, in fact, some sets that just take a little time to marinate. And I have examples of that for myself. Um, One of them was 2018-2019 status. Because when that product initially came out in March or April of 2019, I didn't really want anything to do with it. I didn't like the pastels. uh, The relics weren't any good. The whole thing just felt cheap to me. Maybe I just didn't know much about it. Because once these cards circulated for six months or so, I realized there were a lot of components that appealed to me. There was the mirrored numbering element that the um, status and aspirations parallels had. You had different patterns of distribution with exclusive Walmart and Target parallels. And then you had a bit of mystery when it came to the print runs of, of the case hits, which were called pursuit cards. So, you know, come November or December, Mrs. Wax Museum and myself were driving all over town trying to find status blasters. Um, And yes, those were the days where you could still find remnants of a release long after it came out. Um, That's probably the last days, though. That was November of 2019. That's about when it stopped. But, you know, I had friends that had similar experiences with the product. And um, I noticed that status started getting more attention on social media alone. So I wasn't alone. But 
I figure there were some people out there at the same time that were sitting on this product and they used that growing interest to their advantage and maybe fanned the flames a little bit. But to answer the second part of your question, is the fact that they were once glanced over the reason why they rose to prominence. There are probably examples that indicate yes and probably some uh, that, that say no. I don't think it's really set in stone either way. All right, Blemished underscore Jim said, Hoops has a 75th anniversary parallel in this year's product. Do you know of any other sets that celebrate the history of the league as a whole? Uh, If you're talking about strictly 75th anniversary themed cards, then there's also a hollow foil Donruss parallel number to 75 that's got the 75th diamond logo stamped on it. And then Impeccable is supposed to have some sort of set, um, autograph set, I should say, to commemorate the 75th. At least they showed it in the mock-ups. We'll see. If you're talking about historic sets in general, there's a lot of them out there, but some you might want to consider here just off the top of my head. 96-97 Top Stars, 2005-2006 Tops Fan Favorites, and then uh, 2009-2010 Panini Hall of Fame. All right, last question. The Corner View said, Fantasy booking game-worn or event-worn, and it doesn't have to be just sports, memorabilia cards you could wish into existence and into your PC. Uh, And then he lists some that he would choose. He wants a Reggie Miller jersey card from the 98 Eastern Conference Finals. He wants a Monica Lewinsky piece of the blue dress card. He wants a movie-worn Turbo Man suit piece from Arnold Schwarzenegger from Jingle All the Way. He wants an O.J. Simpson court-worn glove piece. And he wants a Masters green jacket cut up from any year. Um, wow. All right. I, I really like this question. So I've already talked a little about a Malice in the Palace booklet I'd create if I could with a piece of the cup and a piece of Ron's jersey. Um, a couple of the ones that this person came up with are ones I wouldn't mind having myself, like the Reggie Eastern Conference Finals. Although I'd be a little cautious with a piece of the blue dress, but... Um, you know, to avoid any snags in this hypothetical, let's just assume that valuable historical pieces are going to be chopped up. I'll try to pick a few that I think are a little more expendable, but some nice stuff is going to be cut up. Um, as far as sports relics go, I think some relics from Wilt's 100-point game would be really cool, and it doesn't just have to be the jersey or the shorts or anything like that. How about that piece of paper that he held up post-game that, that had, you know, 100 written on it? Um, where did that paper go? Or, you know, if we're talking about baseball, right? I knew that I know they blew up the Bartman ball at one point, but imagine if they'd put pieces of that into cards. Um, now, that got me thinking about historical relics in general. And there's already some really interesting historical stuff out there. In fact, uh, back in 2012, Panini put out an Americana set that had redemptions for four. Dwight Eisenhower cut autos, and each one of them included a star from one of his general uniforms that, you know, Eisenhower had gifted to somebody at one point. So um, those were redemptions. And around 2016, it looked like none of them had been redeemed. So there were still four copies out there. And because of that, I ended up ripping three cases of this stuff because I thought my chances were pretty good. Um, And to this day, it's the only case of a product I've ever ripped. Well, Unfortunately, I didn't pull one of those, but I got some cool things like a Jackie Kennedy dress and a Barbara Bush auto. So to this day, it's still one of the coolest products Panini's ever put together, in my opinion. 
and I'm only talking about the 2012 version. There were some other years, not so much, but um, some other you know historical stuff out there. I know Leaf made a dual cut auto of JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald, which had a piece of leather from the convertible JFK was riding in when he was assassinated. Um, I'm not sure what to think about that one. <laughs> I'm not sure where Brian Gray got that relic from, but um, sticking with the JFK theme and something that could reasonably be divvied up, how about cards with film from the film cells, I should say, from the Zapruder film? Now, you could exclude the real graphic ones and maybe just use some of the generic car footage or the you know pre and post assassination. Yeah, okay. The National Archives probably isn't going to let go of that one. But um, what about the Nixon tapes? All that stuff's been digitized. There's thousands of them. It doesn't, you know, well, it can't be the smoking gun tape. I guess it could be. It'd just be empty tape. But, um, you know, all the Nixon tapes, that can't be that scarce, right? But it's also something that the general public doesn't have any kind of access to. I think by now you're starting to figure out my favorite era in U.S. history. So it's no surprise then that I targeted a sign set from the early 70s when I did that. All right. Well, there you have it. I think I responded to something like 23 different people. I want to thank everyone that took the time to submit a question. I hope there was a little something in there for all of you. And maybe you have your own ideas for some sort of historical relic. Let me know on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>